the mark of man's last government. That's right, his last government. Very interesting. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembrick. I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV. We are discovering what Revelation 17 says as we are in Revelation 17 to 19. Now this is very interesting. So stay with us because it's gonna get really good over the next few days. Corey is here with Ryan. Corey? I'm going to be taking a look at grief and ancient mourning rituals. Ryan? Today, my study involves John's vision of Jesus Christ on a white horse. It's gonna be a good one. Yeah, it, it is really. I mean, th these are really interesting times in the scripture and we come down to this, so it's good. What are you doing, Jan? One word, overcomers. Okay, this is awesome. The next 28 minutes and 30 seconds, we're gonna be talking about all of this. So get ready, get your Bible guide, open up your Bible and let's listen to what God is saying to us right now. Revelation 17, verses 10 through 18. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Revelation chapter 17, verses 10 through 18. Revelation chapter 17 to 19, that's 17, 18, and 19. There's a lot of information here and it's very, very interesting. So let's pay attention to what God is saying to us. Revelation 17 unfolds into a climactic set of events revealing Satan's scheme through political ambition and spiritual forces of darkness, Babylon the Great and the Scarlet Beasts. Now the seven kings are revealed, five of which have passed away. One still is, and the seventh has yet to come. And the beast is an eighth king 
of the seventh king, who will rule over 10 kings for a short time. The seventh and the eighth kings, along with their 10, the final kingdom of man, and the Antichrist, they will wage war against Christ and his people, but they will lose. At the end, it is said that Babylon rules over the kings of the earth, who likewise revel in her luxury, yet they all hate her, that according to 17 verse 16, and will bring her to ruin and burn her with fire. Revelation 18 speaks of this climatic ruin, Babylon's punishment. In Revelation 19, Christ returns on a white horse, a conquering king for all kings, marking the end of Satan's short-lived reign and the beginning of God's long-awaited kingdom. There is a lot to cover here, but we're going to focus on 17. As we do that, we need to pay attention because God is working. Do you have your Bible guide? If not, why not? Write for your Bible guide or call or go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com. And when you go there, it'll take you to a donate, donate, our donate page. Thank you so much for that. Now, we don't tell you how much because we believe the Holy Spirit will speak to you. So, Holy Spirit, speak to the people. Touch them and help them today in Jesus' name. Amen. But call and get your Bible guide or go to the online version and second you'll be with us, the final government. Help us, Lord, today to listen carefully to this because this is very important. We're going to try to go slow and we're going to try to understand what you're doing. In Jesus' name, and we said together, amen and amen. All right, let's try to understand what the Holy Spirit is saying. Chapter 17, verse 10. There are also seven kings. Five kings have fallen. One is, and the other has not, or has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to punishment or perdition. The ten horns which you saw are 10 kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind and they will give their power and authority to the beast. Now this is interesting because the 10 kings with the beast are marks of the last of man's governments. The last of man's governments. In some way, the authority of man will be elevated to a one-world empire. A lot of people have talked about the one-world empire. It's not a big name. It's a simple name, and it's been thought of before, and people have said it before. But the one-world empire, what makes it different is it will rebel against God. Very important to remember that. The one world empire will rebel against God. We need to keep that in our hearts and our minds. So we know that. Now, let's go to chapter 17, verse 14. It says, these will make war with the lamb, that rebellion against God, and the lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords. That's important to remember. He is Lord of lords and king 
of kings. He is spirit, the, the, the spiritual over all spirits and the king over all kings. And those who are with him are called. Those who are with him are chosen. And those who are with him are faithful. Beloved, we need to remember that the final kingdom of man will attempt to overthrow God. Attempt. The Lord God has the final victory once and for all. Let me tell you, this is important to remember. They will attempt, a lot of people talk to me and a lot of people in conspiracy theories and everything else. There's not a conspiracy going, not one on earth that God is afraid of. God knows everything and he's afraid. Instead of praying and asking the Lord for provision, they make up theories and stories about how they're going to stay safe and what they're going to do. And I may be talking to some of you now. Let me say that Jesus Christ is more powerful than any human being, more powerful than any scheme of kings, more powerful than Satan, more powerful than anything in heaven and earth. God is the most powerful. Keep that in mind. We serve Jesus Christ, who is God. That's something we need to pay attention to. Revelation 17, 15 to 18. Listen carefully. Then he said to me, John says, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples. They are multitudes. They are nations and they are tongues. These are people of the earth. Verse 16 continues, and the 10 horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put into their hearts to fulfill his purpose to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. That's Babylon. The future ten kings join with the beast and destroy the prostitute Babylon. For God has put into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being one of one mind. Now, God knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows who the Antichrist, he knows all of that. And so if we have any questions regarding that, we pray to the Lord Jesus Christ and he speaks to us. We did a series on Revelation and we want to mention it to you so you understand it. And you can write for your copy of the DVDs we teach through Revelation. Very important. Can't do it in six minutes in this segment. But I want to tell you there's a lot here. And Father, in Jesus' name, help us to hear this and understand that we're not creating conspiracies, but we're telling the truth from your word, the word of God, which speaks to us. Help us today, Lord and Holy Spirit, to be able to understand what Revelation is telling us and to be ready for it because you, Father, are coming back quickly. In Jesus' wonderful and awesome name, and every single one of us said together, amen and amen. Now remember, write for your Bible guide because the year's just a few days away and you need to get a hold of us by internet or by calling us or by writing us.
Well, it's time now to carry on with our Bible study. And today, part of our scripture assignment includes the stunning vision that John had of the coming Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 19. And there's so much of John's description that we could focus on. But today, I really want to specifically talk about what he sees on his head. John says in verse 12, his eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. Now, the last time that we saw Jesus wearing a crown, it was made of thorns. But now John doesn't see a thorny crown and he doesn't just see one crown, but he sees many. Let's study. Although just one week earlier, he had made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem as the king of the Jews, Jesus was now being horrifically beaten and scourged at the hands of the Romans in preparation for his crucifixion. Respect spiraled quickly into ridicule as the soldiers stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Then when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. That the Romans placed a crown of thorns upon the head of Jesus to mock him is appropriate, since from the earliest periods of history, chaplets of leaves were bestowed upon heroes who had conquered on the field of battle, and later also upon Olympic champions. Hence the crown of thorns mimicked these wreaths of triumph, as well as of the golden crowns of kings. However, to the ignorance of the world, this wasn't a defeat, but a victory, because the Messiah's life wasn't being taken, but rather it was being given. The Son of God and the very creator of the world had willingly traded his heavenly crown for a crown of scorn, which literally bore one of the identifying marks of the cursed creation, thorns and thistles. However, this wasn't the end, but the beginning, a new beginning. In fact, Jesus' victory over sin and death was foreseen and declared many years earlier. For example, Psalm 132 verse 18 says of the triumphant Messiah, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. A particularly vivid metaphor when one considers the ancient practice of bestowing chaplets of leaves on champions and victors of war. Also, the Apostle John saw and describes the coming Jesus in Revelation chapter 19. One of the things he noted was his head. On it was no longer a crown of thorns, but instead many crowns. Significantly, in ancient times, monarchs who claimed authority over more than one country wore more than one crown. The king of Egypt, for example, wore united crowns of Upper and Lower Egypt. And when Ptolemy Philometor entered Antioch as a conqueror, he wore a triple crown, two for Egypt and the third for Asia. Yet John saw him who was king of kings and lord of lords, and on his head were many crowns. Thus, in a beautiful figure, the universal dominion of our blessed Lord is set forth. So Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and creator of everything, exchanged his heavenly crown for a crown of thorns. And remember, thorns are a part of the curse on the creation. So by bearing the thorns, he was bearing the curse. And while the world believed Jesus had been defeated, it was actually a major victory because it was by his death that he was able to defeat sin. What's more, when he rose three days later, he also defeated death once and for all. Jesus is alive and he is sitting at the right hand of the Father God in heaven. And the next time he comes, he won't be coming as a lamb led to the slaughter, but as a conqueror and as a king. And John sees the coming Christ and he's wearing many crowns, signifying his complete and total authority over everything and everyone. His coming is sure, 
The only question now is, are you ready? And to be ready, you need to surrender to Jesus Christ and say, Lord, and surrender is a bad word today. Everybody wants to do their own thing. But surrender means that you can't really control, you, you admit you can't control yourself perfectly. So you've got to understand that there's sin in our life. And we surrender to Jesus Christ and ask him to forgive us of our sin because he paid the cost and we killed him, but he came to life. And that resurrection power is the eternal life. So that's what that means. Thank you, Ryan. Excellent piece. Corey? All right. Well, today we are going to be talking about uh, ancient ways that grief was expressed through mourning rituals. So we come across mourning rituals and grief all throughout the Bible, which is no surprise because the Bible is recording human history. So, you know, way back in the book of Genesis, we see mourning practices. Uh, and here in the book of Revelation, uh, you know, mourning is also talked about again. So humans expressing their grief, their outrage, their sorrow over different situations that they are going through. So today, let's take a look at some of the ways that the Bible describes these rituals. The Bible is very consistent in its portrayal of ancient Israelite mourning. People grieving the loss of loved ones, tragedy in the community, offenses against God, devastating warfare and the like are described as putting on sackcloth, tearing their clothes, taking off shoes, sitting on dust and ashes, putting dust and ashes on their heads, cutting or shaving their hair, and fasting. These actions could be done all together, individually, or in any combination, and likely went along with wailing and appropriate grieving songs and laments. There has been quite a bit of research that has gone on in trying to understand the significance of these mourning rituals, and even in attempting to track where they came from. It's been noted that all these practices involve humiliation of the mourners and in some way connect them to their own mortality, in a sense, becoming like the dead themselves, naked, returning to dust, not eating, and generally losing the physical markers of living people, like growing hair. As it is often said, there's no better time than a funeral to contemplate one's own mortality. In this sense, these mourning rituals would be grieving the specific loss of a loved one's life while broadly bemoaning the overall human condition of mortality before God. There has also been a noted progression of practice when it comes to sackcloth. In the early passages of the Bible, clothes are torn and removed, and then sackcloth is worn. In later tradition, sackcloth is worn in addition to torn garments. Sackcloth was a rough garment in the style of a loincloth. This dress, paired with going barefoot, has been seen as an association with the dead by some, as noted above, and by others, it's seen as removing a layer of civilization, as going back to how life would be without all of the systems that man has in place. In this case, it would be a way of remembering who we are, and that in the end, we're still mortal, even in the midst of our societal greatness. As Adam and Eve had to leave the garden just clothed and without shoes, so humanity is. Death is a great equalizer. There are also a few theories about putting dust and ashes on one's head during mourning. An older theory cites an ancient practice of burial in which a mound of dirt was put over the grave. This theory posits that mourners carried baskets of dirt to the gravesite on their heads to build the mound, leaving them with dirty hair and clothing, a sign to all that they had been involved in a funeral. This practice could then have been remembered by the act of putting dust and ashes on the head. 
Another theory comes from archaeologists excavating Beersheba. They discovered that the dirt of the city's streets was mixed with ashes. This process recycled household ash and had the benefit of increased durability. So when mourners are described as sitting on dust and ashes, these archaeologists put forward that they were sitting on public streets, conducting their mourning for all to see. You know, our grief and our mourning look a little bit different today than it does reflected in the Bible, simply because of the culture that we're living from, the time in which we're living from. But I think one of the really interesting things about taking a look at uh, mourning rituals, not only in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but in our lives today, in our cultures today, uh, it has to do with the fact that when you analyze mourning rituals, it tends to reveal uh, different understandings that cultures have about death, about life, and about life after death as well. Uh, so it's a really interesting thing uh, when you're able to compare and contrast ancient culture, ancient biblical culture with our own. Yeah, that is interesting. And because we, in, in my view, uh, which is a biblical view, we were not made to perish. Mm -hmm. We were not made to die. Mm -hmm. In fact, some definitions of perish mean separation from God. Yeah. But our physical bodies are separated from God, but our spirits are not. Yeah. And when, when we do that, we were not made for that. But God has saved us through his salvation. Mm -hmm. and our spirits live. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is really good. Corey. You know, and I just want to mention too, just so that there's no confusion, that when I am talking about biblical mourning practices, I'm talking about mourning practices that are recorded of in the Bible. It doesn't mean that these are good ways to express your mourning or grief right. or preferred ways to express your mourning or grief. God's not, by recording it in the Bible, God's not automatically saying, this is how you should do it. Uh, but it's interesting still to look at the motivations behind those mourning rituals and then to look at the motivation behind the way that you're dealing with grief to see if you're honoring life and honoring God through your mourning and your grief. Because, yeah, just quickly, the grief is the saying goodbye to somebody for a time. Mm -hmm. And Paul says, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Mm -hmm. And he tells us not to be uh, focused like the unbelievers. He says, mm -hmm. remember, you will see your loved one again. Mm -hmm. You will see your friend again. And that becomes very, very important. Janice? Well, in uh, chapter 17 of Revelation, we see a lot of imagery here, the scarlet woman and the scarlet beast. We're given the meaning behind the woman and the beast. We're hearing about kings and kingdoms. But here's my favorite verse, verse 14 of chapter 17. And spoiler alert, here it is. These will make war with the lamb and the lamb will overcome them for he is lord of lords and king of kings and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful my favorite verse he is king of kings and lord of lords jesus overcomes all of this and that's our spoiler alert and thank you ryan for your segment as well talking about the king of kings and the lord of lords i want to read some verses about how we are overcomers through christ jesus jesus said this in john 16 verse 33 these things i have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. 
these last several months have been anything but peaceful. They've been disturbing on different levels to, I think, everybody, every age, every nation. And yet Jesus promises, in me, you may have peace. The world doesn't give that kind of peace. In fact, if we trust the things of this world, we will be anything but peaceful. The kind of peace that we can have through Christ is knowing that he is the overcomer. He is the winner. And we put all of our faith, our trust, and our hope in him if we have asked him to be our savior, if we have asked him to forgive us of our sins, if we have asked him to come and live, literally dwell in us, to help us in our decisions, in every move that we make, we submit our lives to him. Does it mean that we're perfect? Absolutely not. I, I hit my pillow at night, most nights, thinking of all the things that I wish I hadn't done. And I'm asking the Lord for his forgiveness and to help me to have a better day tomorrow, to be that ambassador, to answer, to react the way that I should. Here's another verse. First John 4, chapter 4. John tells us, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. That's the demonic spirits that we hear about in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Um, you have overcome them because he, God, who is in you, is greater than he who is in the world. First John 5, 4 and 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And listen to this final scripture as we close out this segment today. John 5, verses 11 through 13. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. We know who the victor is. It is the King of Kings. It is the Lord of Lords. It is the only begotten Son of God. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Know Him today. Serve Him today. Trust in Him today. He is faithful. He is true. He is our Lord. He is our King. He is our Savior, our Healer, our Redeemer. Blessed be the name of the Lord. <laughs> 